Pastor and author Max Lucado actually wrote a book. Now, he wrote many books, but in one of them, he talked about the fact that for years, the U.S. government had what was called a conscience fund. And the intent for this fund was that people who felt guilty about cheating the government, they could send the money back anonymously and then feel better about that. And they received thousands of letters. They received millions of dollars over the years. And one of those letters was written in 1974. The handwriting was shaky and the tone was desperate. But it said, I am sending you $10 for a blanket that I stole during World War II. My mind could not rest. I'm sorry I'm late. And then it was signed XGI and PS. I, now I can be ready to meet God. And then sometimes the amount isn't big, but the guilt is. A woman sent in two eight-cent stamps. And this was because years prior to this, she received an envelope with an eight-cent stamp on it, and the postmark didn't cover the stamp. So she steamed it off, and she used it again. So she just had to take care of that guilt and then a former government employee mailed in a dollar for four ballpoint pens that she had never returned to the office. And then one man sent in $150 cash, admitting he cheated on his taxes. And his letter concluded, if I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest of the money. So most of us know what it's like to feel guilty. It might not be anxiety over something that happened 30 years ago or regret over some ballpoint pens, but we live with a growing guilt in our lives over more serious offenses. It's broken promises, stolen property, wounded relationships, bruised bodies, etc. And all we want is a clean conscience. We want a sense of forgiveness for the past. We want to be ready to see God, just as one of these people did. And Luke chapter 23 records an incredible story of a man who desperately needed forgiveness. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there were thieves to the left and the right of him also dying on a cross. And on one of those crosses, there was this one guy who was feeling guilty. And we don't know how many times he had stolen. We don't know what. We don't know from whom. But we do know that he was actually teetering between life and death physically, and he was teetering between life and death spiritually as well, between heaven or hell. And we know that he initially joined in with the crowd, and he was hurling insults at Jesus, doing whatever he could. And we wonder, what happened to change this thief's heart? What was it? Why did he begin the day sneering at Jesus, and then a few hours later, he's looking to Jesus as his source of forgiveness and hope? See, there are four significant facts about this man that resulted in his forgiveness, four qualities that we can actually still use today when Jesus makes the offer of forgiveness available to us. And the first fact is that he feared God. So we're in verse 40. But the other criminal stopped him and said, You should fear God. You are getting the same punishment he is. So the very first step in actually coming to God is to fear him. It's to respect him. 
And the 110th Psalm says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we begin by recognizing God as creator and that we are inferior to him. We realize that God is going to be our judge someday. We are going to have to stand before him and be accountable. Fear isn't the highest motive, but it's the beginning motive, and it's legitimate. In 1 John 4.18, the apostle wrote, Where God's love is, there is no fear, because God's perfect love drives out fear. It is punishment that makes a person fear. So love is not made perfect in the person who fears. So once we fully accept God's grace and forgiveness, that gives way to love and trust. But there are still times when, as a Christian, we aren't perfect, we're motivated by fear. Sometimes I obey God because I love him. Sometimes I obey God because I know of the dreadful consequences of what happens when people go astray. And I see the price they pay. And I obey out of fear. So there are two kinds of sinners in the world. There are God-fearers. These are people who live outside of Christ, so they're not Christians. But they still have a, a, a fear of God. But then there are God's sneers. These are people who defy God. They have absolutely no fear of judgment. And an example of this would be from 1 Kings and King Ahab. He had no fear of God whatsoever. He thought that belief in God was something that was trivial. The first time I went to the Halifax Correctional Center, it was quite an experience. Now, this was the building prior to what we see now in the Central Nova uh, can, uh, Center. And uh, I was surrounded by people that were there because of crimes they had committed. Some of them had committed serious crimes, and they were just waiting there before going on to federal penitentiaries. But I did not see the fear of God in anybody. Sim actually eventually numbs the conscience. And there are people who will put their hand on the Bible and they will swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But then they lie. There are people that will actually take the Lord's name in vain daily and never even feel bad about it. The first time I took my grandson Seth to watch a Halifax Mooseheads game, there was cursing going on around us. So I said, this is a teaching moment for Seth. I said, Seth, when you hear the name Jesus Christ in church, that's pronounced the proper way. These people aren't pronouncing it that way. They are swearing, and God doesn't like that. So we see that going on around us. We see people commit huge sins on a Saturday night, and then they come to church on Sunday mornings, sing the songs without even the slightest bit of choking on the words. In Romans chapter 3, Paul actually charts the downward spiral of the Roman Empire. And he said, their mouths are full of cursing and hate. They are always ready to kill people. Everywhere they go, they cause ruin and misery. They don't know how to live in peace. They have no fear of God. And that is so true in our world. And as our culture becomes increasingly pagan, we become have actually a decreasing sense of guilt. 
And if you were to watch an episode of one of our amazing talk shows on TV, you would see this. The subjects that they talk about, these things are referred to in the Bible as debauchery. In Jeremiah 6.15, the prophet said, They should be ashamed of the terrible way they act, but they are not ashamed at all. They don't even know how to blush about their sins. So they will fall along with everyone else. They will be thrown to the ground when I punish them, says the Lord. Now as bizarre as it is to be paraded before the public over and over again, we lose a sense of sensitivity. Familiarity doesn't breed contempt as we are told. Familiarity actually breeds acceptance. And it's not long before we can't distinguish between right and wrong. And there's no fear of God. And the church needs to ask the same questions that one of the thieves asked the other. He said, have you no fear of God? Because one day we are going to be accountable to him. C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory for children called the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's interesting that he chose a lion by the name of Aslan to actually represent Jesus. And in that book, and I've watched the movie as well, everybody felt comfortable in the presence of the lion. The children could run their fingers through his mane, just like my wife used to be able to run her fingers through my hair. They could lay their heads on his shoulder. They could ride on his back. But there was always an element of fear, because they would occasionally hear the lion roar, and they were afraid that he was dangerous. So somebody asked the question, is the lion safe? And the great answer was, no, he is not safe, but he is good. So God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. He's a God of grace, but he's also a God who pours out his wrath on those who refuse to obey him. And maybe we've emphasized his safety so much, we talk about the loving shepherd aspect, and, and we've overlooked the fact that he is also going to roar once in a while. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that fact alone should be enough to give even the hardened, most hardened of sinners reason to respect God. The second fact that we look at here is that he observed Jesus. For several hours that day, this thief studied Jesus from up close and personal. In verse 32, there were also two criminals led out with Jesus to be put to death. So from Pilate's courtyard all the way to Golgotha, all the way through this whole ordeal, this man was observing the behavior of Jesus. And Luke 23 gives you an idea of what he witnessed that day. And this was the worst kind of brutality you could find. He was kicked, he was beaten, he was spit upon, he was mocked, he was scourged, beaten within inches of his life. He was beaten so badly that he couldn't carry the cross piece that he was going to be nailed to shortly after. We read in verse 26, as they led Jesus away, Simon, a man from Cyrene, was coming in from the fields. They forced him to carry Jesus' cross and to walk behind him. So what Jesus didn't say 
actually impressed the thief more than what he could have said. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be like a lamb led before the slaughter. His, his mouth would not be open. And Jesus didn't pronounce curses on his assailants. He didn't plead for some of the bystanders to come and, and save him. Instead, when he saw the women weeping, he said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, weep for your children. And then when he was taken to the place called the skull, he was nailed to that cross. And the thief witnessed that happening. And they witnessed Jesus not protesting. They didn't see him try to wriggle away from that. He said, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. And then he watched as Jesus' cross was raised just like his was and then dropped with a thud into the place prepared for it. And he knew the horrible, excruciating pain that just shoots throughout your whole body when that happens. Everybody cursed at that moment, but not Jesus. He did cry out, but it wasn't for God to damn his executioners, but it was for God to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. So if I was him, at that moment, it would come my cell phone, because of, and I would dial the Air Force, and I would give the coordinates, and there would be an airstrike that would take place right away to take care of these executioners. But that's not what Jesus did. So the thief was impressed with the incredible composure and restraint of Jesus. And when his eyes met Jesus, they didn't see a man with eyes filled with hatred. What he saw was a man with eyes filled with forgiveness. And he had never seen that before in a man experiencing such harassment and the most excruciating death known to humanity. So in verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. Now we hate it when people gloat over us in victory. And here we have Jesus writhing in pain. And then the rulers sneered at him. They said he saved himself. Why doesn't he, if he's the God's Messiah, save others and himself? Now we have a phrase in English that you shouldn't kick somebody when they're down. It's basically don't heap abuse on somebody when they're in a terrible situation, when they have lost. But that's exactly what we see going on here. These rulers see somebody who is dying, but they have allowed jealousy to fester for so long that their mouths just start spewing forth all this venom that is coming from their hearts. So in verse 36... The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. Now the thief watches Jesus refuse to basically take drugs. It, it was a sedative, even when it seemed as if it was justified. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now even though they were mocking Jesus, the thief now has an aha moment because he now understands who Jesus really is. They've referred to him as the Messiah, as the Savior, and now he understands why this man is acting the way he was. And then he wasn't alone in his conclusion, 
because the Roman centurion who'd witnessed dozens of executions came to this conclusion when Jesus took his last breath and he said, this man truly was the Son of God. So even if you aren't a Christian, you have to be impressed with Jesus. Even if you're turned off by church, if you think it's full of hypocrites, or maybe they try to impose values on you that you don't like, or maybe they're always asking for money, or you think that they're asking for money. You have to be impressed with the person of Jesus Christ because his followers said things like, no one ever spoke like this man. His enemies said, I can't deny that he performs miracles. His judge says, I find no fault with him. His executioner said, surely this man was the son of God. And the man who died on the cross beside him said, this man has done nothing wrong. So the church may fail you. Other Christians may let you down. But Jesus will never let you down. The third fact about this man that led to his forgiveness was he admitted his guilt. So now we're picking up in verse 40. But the other criminal stopped him and said, You should fear God. You are getting the same punishment he is. Now it's rare that a criminal will admit blame. They'll say that they were framed or that they were cheated by a friend. And then they're angry at the prosecutor. They're angry at the judge. They're angry at the witnesses. They're angry at the jury. And we do the same thing within our own lives. We're always trying to put the blame on others or say that we're not at fault. A little boy looked out the front window of their house and he saw this big dog. And then he must have been about 10 years of age because my grandson, Seth, makes up stories. But, uh, and he said, Mom, there's a lion out in the front yard. And she said, Son, you know there isn't a lion out in that front yard. You know that that is just a big dog. You are lying. And you're doing this too much. I want you to go upstairs and confess your sins to God. So the little boy, he trudged upstairs. And after a while... He came back down and his mother said, did you ask God for forgiveness? And she, he said, yes, I did, Mom. And did you tell him you lied about the lion? Yes, I did, Mom. And what did God say? God said, honest mistake. First time I saw that dog, I thought it was a lion too. So we, we, we try it from an early age. We have a difficult time admitting, I lied, I sinned. I'm guilty. I'm the one responsible. We blame our heredity. We blame our environment, our education, our circumstances. We even blame God. And we blame everyone and everything but ourselves. So it's very rare to admit our guilt. Charles Colson, in his book, The Body, talks about actually talking to a group of businessmen at a prayer breakfast, be similar to our Nova Scotia leadership breakfast. And as a result of that, a man by the name of Mr. Abercrombie invited him to come to a weekly noontime meeting he had with some other supposedly Christian leaders in the city. And when they got there, these guys were all in their power suits and they sat around this huge boardroom table and there was a big window, well the whole wall was a window and you could see this city and these guys owned half that city. And they seemed to defer to Mr. Abercrombie, he was the one who was kind of above them all. And then Colson had been asked to address the group 
and then allow time for some questions. So Colson talked about the fact that we're all sinners, and he could see some of the men squirming in their leather chairs, and he must have hit a sensitive note, because at the end, the first question was, you don't really believe that we're sinners, do you? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And an older man said, intelligent people don't go for that country preacher stuff. And Colson added, I believe that we are desperately sinful. What's inside of us is pretty ugly. We actually deserve hell if not for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. So Mr. Abercrombie actually looked pretty depressed by now. And I don't know about that, he said. I've been a good person all my life. I go to church and I wear myself out with all the good things, the good works that I do. And Colson said the room seemed particularly quiet and 20 sets of eyes were staring at him, wondering how he was going to answer this. And, and he said, Mr. Abercrombie, I certainly hate to say this because you probably won't invite me back again, but you are, for all intents and purposes, further away from the kingdom of heaven than the prisoners that I work with because they are aware of their own sin. And someone at the end of the table coughed and another one rattled his coffee cup and, and a flush kind of worked its way up from the white starch collar of Mr. Abercrombie up into his face. And then after a few moments of silence, someone ended the awkwardness and asked another question. But th this is what... Uh, Colson said to them, he said, in fact, gentlemen, we're really more like Adolf Hitler than Jesus Christ. And after the silence had been broken and they were starting to leave, Mr. Abercrombie grabbed Colson by the arm and pulled him into an empty office. And he said, I don't have what you have. And Colson said, I know, but you can. God is touching your heart right now. But Abercrombie said, no, maybe later. But Colson kept pushing it, and it wasn't long before the two of them were down on their knees together, and he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. See, one of the things we have to do in coming to God for forgiveness is we have to admit our guilt. We can act sophisticated, we can laugh about it, but we have to admit, like the thief on the cross, I am guilty. And the closer you get to the perfection of Jesus Christ, the more you'll be aware of your own imperfection. The closer you get to the holiness of God, the more you will understand your own unholiness and the need for forgiveness and the total dependence upon Jesus. When people say, I live a pretty good life, that means they've never come within arm lengths of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good invitation that he is not a part of their lives. And then the last fact about this man was that he requested forgiveness. Verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here's a man who knows very little about theology. He can't offer any good works he knows that Jesus is a special person and that he claimed to be the Messiah. He's only got a few minutes left, so he can't really do anything for somebody else. He didn't have time to lead a clean life. He didn't have time to give Jesus money. 
he basically said, Jesus, if you're going to save me, then you're going to have to do the work because I don't have anything to offer you except my need. And you'll see what Max Lucado said about that. He said, no one would have given him a prayer that day, but that's all he had. And in the end, that's all he needed. And that was enough. For in that moment, a lifetime of debt was canceled. And in verse 43, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is that place where the souls of the dead Christians wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And since the thief was going to be there with Jesus, that meant that his lifetime of sin was completely forgiven in the moment when he requested it of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus actually performed his greatest miracle. The greatest miracle wasn't the fact that it turned totally dark at noon. It wasn't the fact that the huge veil in the temple was torn in two. It wasn't even the fact that dead Christians came back to life and were walking around again. The greatest miracle was the fact that this thief was going to be there with Jesus and that his sins were being washed away and he had nothing to give back. Ephesians 2, 8. I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourselves. It was a gift from God. So Ken Geyer said, it's incredible when you think about it. Amidst the humiliating abuse of the crowd and the excruciating pain of the cross, Jesus was still about his father's business. In the last moments before his death, he was still telling the common thief about the uncommon riches of heaven. So there were three crosses at Calvary. In the middle was the cross of redemption. And this was a man dying for sin. On one side was a cross of rebellion, and that was a man dying in sin. And on the other side was a cross of repentance, a man dying to sin. And I hope that's the cross that represents you. Because that same grace that was available to this thief on the cross is available to you today. And to receive it, all you have to do is confess your belief in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, request his forgiveness, and then you're instructed to, by Jesus to do what the thief on the cross couldn't, be baptized into him. And then he promises as a result of all of this that you will experience the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It will wash away the sins in your life. 